0: This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. A few years back, there was popular criticism going around of a Spielberg classic, Indiana Jones. Somehow the critiques did not revolve around aliens or casting choices, but around the plot of the beloved Raiders of the Lost Ark. The criticism went something like this. Indiana Jones himself, his heroism, his intervention, it was irrelevant. The mission Indy undertook, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, was to keep the Ark of the Covenant out of the hands of Nazis and make sure they don't open it. If he didn't intervene, this would surely happen. So Indy gets in on the action and guess what? The Nazis get the Ark, they open it, and somehow Indy is hailed as the hero of the movie. I wonder if our passage from Mark today brings up a similar dilemma for us. The story of Jesus' transfiguration may raise more questions for us than it answers. How exactly did Peter know it was Moses and Elijah? What exactly am I supposed to be picturing? There are changes made in the material world. God speaks, and the details call on images soaked in meaning and power for the Jewish people. It is epic. And at the same time, if I were to pluck this passage out of our Bibles, if I were to pluck it out of your minds and hearts right now, what difference would that make to your faith? What difference would it make to your everyday lives? Is the transfiguration, like Indiana Jones, irrelevant? We know it wasn't irrelevant to the gospel writers. It appears in all three of the synoptic gospels. It wasn't irrelevant to the church. We have both this Sunday as Transfiguration Sunday, as well as a Feast of the Transfiguration in August. So our question shifts. What might be missing from our worship, from our understanding of and obedience to Jesus, if we were to overlook the Transfiguration? In hopes of catching a glimpse of that meaning, we'll explore three pairings First, we'll explore the transfiguration and Mark's gospel. Second, we'll consider the glory of God and halftime shows. And finally, we'll consider the significance of faces and love is blind. Mark's gospel is artfully and memorably structured. It's crafted in a way that not only talks about Jesus and its content, but is arranged in ways that as you walk with Jesus through the gospel, the arrangement itself builds and deepens your understanding of Jesus and his kingdom. I love all the gospels, but the straightforward beauty of Mark always brings me back. As we arrive at the transfiguration in Mark's gospel, there are a few things we need to know to begin to lay hold. Of its significance. First, this passage carries in it echoes of Jesus' baptism. In both scenes, there are supernatural displays and the voice of the Father. So we'll flash back to Mark 1. At Jesus' baptism, at his coronation, the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. In Mark's gospel, the entire scene reads like Jesus is the only one who witnessed it. Here at his baptism, the father said to Jesus, before Jesus had done any notable act, anything that might garner praise, he says, "'You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased.'" Jesus received epically proportioned personal affirmation and acknowledgement from the Father. It's given to him as gift. It's given to him as empowerment for what comes next. Immediately after his baptism, he was led into the wilderness for 40 days. That love that named and experienced pleasure of his Father went with him as he faced temptation. Holding that in our minds, we'll jump forward back into Mark 9. By comparison, what happens at the transfiguration? Rather than the heavens being altered, Jesus' appearance not merely his clothes, was altered, transformed in some way that is obvious and discernible and yet difficult to name. Peter, James, and John are there, and then Moses and Elijah from ages past show up. There is both an intimacy and seclusion to the scene. They are away on this mountain together all alone in the language of our passage, but it's hardly a moment for Jesus alone. The father spoke again. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is a word spoken not to Jesus. It is a word spoken to Peter, James, and John. The Father is now affirming Jesus as gift for them, for their empowerment. The transfiguration was to inform and empower their lives, their worship, but empower them for what? For that, we need to consider what comes before and after the transfiguration. In the preceding verses, we have Jesus's pivotal teaching. Whoever wants to be my disciple must, what? Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He then said, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. The transfiguration is a revelation of that power. The power that animates and reveals Elijah and Moses in their midst that exposes some piercing degree of God's uncreated light and power. We'll explore more of that soon, but for now, it's good to note they were being empowered to obey this teaching, to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus into life with a capital L. And when they come down from the mountain, Peter, James, John, and Jesus are immediately confronted with heartbreaking brokenness and powerlessness, the opposite of the mountain. At the mountain's base is a child oppressed by a demon that robbed him of his speech that threw him into seizures and that tried to kill him. This child was accompanied by a desperate father who in the face of the disciples' inability to heal him turned to Jesus and said, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. The transfiguration in the context of Mark's gospel gave the disciples and gives us the power to live in light of his glory in the midst of darkness and despair. Even momentarily, it peels back the curtain on all the things that perplex us and that harm us and those we love and says, the power of God, the light of God has drawn near in Jesus. It will be obscured, invisible at times, but from before time, it has always been and it will always be. It peels back the curtain in a way that puts suffering and death in its place. Not as the permanent, but impermanent. Not as the conclusion, but as a chapter. The bedrock, the permanent, is in fact God and his glory. And it's to that glory we now turn Our second pairing, The Glory of God and Halftime Shows. In our time, in the age of stadium concerts and LEDs, it's hard not to denigrate the transfiguration in our imaginations. It's hard not to read it and think, but have they been to Vegas? Have they been present for Beyoncé's Everybody on Mute challenge? We may have been to a show, a concert, where we were flooded with light and sound, where the beat pumped through our very bodies as we were swept up with others in an ecstatic moment of celebration. We live in an age where our senses can be engaged and indulged to phenomenal degrees in light and sound and taste and touch and smell. It's hard not to read back onto these disciples that they were, in some respects, first-century rubes who would have been wowed by anything we experience on a daily basis. A Taylor Swift concert would blow their minds. But what if the glory of God is more, not less? What if these men were not regarded as Neanderthals, but in fact as wise, as perceptive, as participating in some core reality, some deep mystery and truth, for which we at present have little imagination? Not growing up in a Christian home, I have almost always found myself perplexed by the notion of glory, the idea of God's glory. Um, If you are like me, I commend Fleming Rutledge's, she's got a new little book on Epiphany. Hat tip to Reverend Krista, who recommended it. This Sunday is the final Sunday of Epiphany Tide, but her insights are good year round. Mother Fleming orients us in this manner. God's glory is the radiant revelation of himself, an emanation of his attributes that humans can receive only by faith. It is his outgoing self-revelation perceived by disciples as dazzling radiance, yes, but more important still As absolute power. God's radiance, his uncreated light, and his absolute power. This is what they stand in the presence of. Repurposing the words of Tolkien do not take Jesus for some conjurer of cheap tricks. The disciples follow the pattern of those before them, Moses and Elijah among them, who have had some encounter with God's glory. They are frightened. Anyone with any sense would be. This fear does not lack confidence in the love of God. It is no faithless fear. It is merely a faith that acknowledges the consuming fire that is our God is inherently more than our fragile and broken humanity can handle. And so Peter offers this idea of shelters or tabernacles. You are full of glory, Peter says, and I am aware that such glory must be mediated for any of us to survive. Let's do like our people did in the wilderness Tabernacle it up. (laughs) As an aside, observing Peter in Scripture is always good for my heart. That God would so thoroughly draw to himself someone who messes up, not just at the beginning, but like consistently through, right? That he would draw to himself someone who offers some pretty crummy ideas about the way things should go and some pretty harebrained plans, and he just half the time misses the point entirely. That's good news for us, isn't it? You and I are not gifted with God's revelation because we get it. But Back to glory and fear. We're beginning to have a sense of what's happening in our passage. This radiance and power, this glory of God is manifested in its inherent splendor and its inherent danger. This glory is revealed and will empower them for Jesus' suffering as well as their own. But it raises another question. Why would someone want to be in God's presence? Knowing the danger knowing what awaits on the other side of the mountain. Do we want to keep this kind of awesome company? To this, we turn to our final pairing, the significance of faces and love is blind. For those of you that might not be aware, love is blind is a turn of phrase, but it is also the name of a reality show in which 15 single men and 15 single women date without seeing one another. You only get to meet one another face to face if one of you proposes and the other one accepts. You get to see them only when you are engaged to be married. I have never watched the show, and I felt it unethical to charge the church for Netflix as sermon research. Um, but even without having watched the show, I get the appeal of the premise. In an age of swiping right and left, we are prone to dismiss potential spouses in an instant based on our practiced superficiality. How might we combat that to find romantic love? Maybe if they just didn't see each other, they could learn to love, learn to be drawn to, attracted to, someone's mind, their heart, their turn of phrase, their conversation skills. Fair enough. At some point though, you're going to want to see them. If the premise of the show is fruitful, if it's doing what it says it's doing, if it's hitting the mark, you want to see them, not to see if you love them. You want to see them because you love them. When you love another, a dear friend, a newborn nephew, a favorite aunt. Seeing does not put your love in jeopardy. Seeing becomes part of the manifestation of your affection. The faces of our loved ones matter. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses asked to see God's glory, to see him. I think it's easy to judge his request. It's easy for me, I'll just speak for myself here, it's easy for me to think that Moses is at best impertinently curious, and at worst, a little power hungry. But what if that request is the most natural one that could be made? What if it's a request that despite the real danger, despite the invitation into suffering, what if it's a request love compels us to make? Church of the Cross, we must be a people more compelled by the love of God, by the glory, the radiance, And power of the love of God than we are by our desire to self-protect. So we turn back to our original question. What might we miss if we overlook the transfiguration? If it were suddenly swept from the scriptures, swept from our memories, what might we miss? Friends, the transfiguration is no Indiana Jones. The enduring glory of God is the decisive factor of history. We would miss that between calls to obedience and real pain and suffering, we've been invited into the knowledge of the glory of God, into that decisive factor in history, the glory of God existing even now in full vibrancy and potency, regardless of however obscured it may be at this moment. We would miss the call of love, not just to embrace or endure suffering, but to seek the face of God. To seek the face of him whom we worship and adore. We prayed this morning, Psalm 27. You speak to my heart and say, Seek my face. Your face, O Lord, will I seek. I'm not sure why each of us came to worship today. Maybe for some of us, showing up is so expected and routine that. We didn't really think about it. I actually have no judgment of why you came this morning. I'm really glad you did. And I invite us now to draw near to the living God present in our midst in worship and to do so with a holy fear but also with a love that compels us To seek his face, to seek the one who created you, who looked into your eyes before you could look into his and said, Beloved, the one whose radiance and power has more weight in the real world than we dare imagine. Today, let us not miss. Jesus' transfiguration. Let us worship together this morning. As our colleague says, beholding by faith the light of his countenance. Let us worship together, empowered by the glory of God to travel the road together ahead. Come what may. Let us pray. Lord thank you that when we are flanked on either side by invitations that are good but hard and by situations in which we feel lost and scared God you in your mercy flanked by there reveal yourself in glory in those spaces Lord Jesus Lord, knowing that we are not worthy to partake of your radiance and glory, that it is not on our merit, but it is in your desire to envelop us. Just like the cloud, when Peter wanted to keep you at arm's length, Lord, and your glory at arm's length, he wanted to build a tabernacle, Lord, you enveloped them in the cloud and spoke to them. Lord Jesus, would your glory envelop your people. Would you speak to us that we might know more of your face and that we might live in the power of your glory in the midst of the darkness of the season? We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.